Chapter twenty two, part one of volume two of a popular history of France from the earliest times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume two of a popular history of France from the earliest times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter twenty two. The Hundred Years' War. Charles V. Part one. So soon as Marcel and three of his chief confidants had been put to death at the St. Anthony Gate, at the very moment when they were about to open it to the English, John Maillard had information sent to the regent, at that time at Charenton, with an urgent entreaty that he would come back to Paris without delay. The news, at once spread abroad through the city, was received with noisy joy there, and the red caps, which had been worn so proudly the night before, were everywhere taken off and hidden. The next morning a proclamation ordered that whosoever knew any of the faction of Marcel should arrest them and take them to the Châtelet, but without laying hands on their goods and without maltreating their wives or children. Several were taken, put to the question, brought out into the public square, and beheaded by virtue of a decree. They were the men who but lately had the government of the city and decided all matters. Some were burgesses of renown, eloquent and learned, and one of them, on arriving at the square, cried out, Woe is me! Would to heaven, O King of Navarre, that I had never seen thee or heard thee! On the 2nd of August, 1358, in the evening, the Dauphin, Charles, re-entered Paris, and was accompanied by John Maillard, who was mightily in his grace and love. On his way a man cried out, By God, sir, if I had been listened to, you would have never entered in here, but after all you will get but little by it. The Count of Tancarville, who was in the prince's train, drew his sword, and spurred his horse upon this rascal. But the Dauphin restrained him, and contented himself with saying, smilingly to the man, You will not be listened to, fair sir. Charles had the spirit of coolness and discretion, and, he thought, says his contemporary, Christine de Pisson, that if this fellow had been slain, the city which had been so rebellious might probably have been excited thereby. Charles, on being resettled in Paris, showed neither clemency nor cruelty, he let the reaction against Stephen Marcel run its course, and turned it to account without further exciting it or prolonging it beyond measure. The property of some of the condemned was confiscated, some attempts at a conspiracy for the purpose of avenging the provost of tradesmen were repressed with severity, and John Maillard and his family were loaded with gifts and favors. On becoming king, Charles determined himself to hold his son at the baptismal font, but Robert Lecoq, bishop of Laon, the most intimate of Marcel's accomplices, returned quietly to his diocese. Two of Marcel's brothers, William and John, owing their protection, it is said, to certain youthful reminiscences on the prince's part, were exempted from all prosecution. Marcel's widow even recovered a portion of his property, and as early as the 10th of August, 1358, Charles published an amnesty, from which he accepted only those who had been in the secret council of the provost of tradesmen, in respect of the great treason and on the same day another amnesty quashed all proceedings for deeds done during the jackery, whether by nobles or ignobles. Charles knew that in acts of rigor or of grace impartiality conduces to the strength and the reputation of authority. The death of Stephen Marcel and the ruin of his party were fatal to the plots and ambitious hopes of the King of Navarre. At the first moment he hastened to renew his alliance with the King of England, and to recommence war in Normandy, Picardy, and Champagne against the regent of France. But several of his local expeditions were unsuccessful. 
the temperate and patient policy of the regent rallied around him the populations aweary of war and anarchy. Negotiations were opened between the two princes, and their regents were laboriously discussing conditions of peace, when Charles of Navarre suddenly interfered in person, saying, I would fain talk over matters with the Lord Duke Regent, my brother. We know that his wife was Joan of France, the Dauphin's sister. Hereat there was great joy, says the chronicler, amongst their counsellors. The two princes met, and the King of Navarre, with modesty and gentleness, addressed the regent in these terms. My lord duke and brother, know that I do hold you to be my proper and especial lord. Though I have for a long while made war against you and against France, our country, I wish not to continue or to foment it. I wish henceforth to be a good Frenchman, your faithful friend and close ally, your defender against the English and whoever it may be. I pray you to pardon me thoroughly, me and mine, for all that I have done to you up to this present. I wish for neither the lands nor the towns which are offered to me or promised to me. If I order myself well, and you find me faithful in all matters, you shall give me all that my deserts shall seem to you to justify. At these words the regent arose and thanked the king with much sweetness. They, one and the other, proffered and accepted wine and spices, and all present rejoiced greatly, rendering thanks to God, who doth blow where he listeth, and doth accomplish in a moment that which men with their sole intelligence have not wit nor power to do in a long while. The town of Melun was restored to the Lord Duke. The navigation of the river once more became free upstream and down. Great was the satisfaction in Paris and throughout the whole country, and peace being thus made, the two princes returned both of them home. The King of Navarre knew how to give an appearance of free will and sincerity to changes of posture and behavior, which seemed to be pressed upon him by necessity, and we may suppose that the Dauphin, all the while that he was interchanging graceful acts, was too well acquainted by this time with the other to become his dupe, but by their apparent reconciliation they put an end, for a few brief moments, between themselves to a position which was burdensome to both. Whilst these events, from the Battle of Poitiers to the death of Stephen Marcel, from the 19th of September, 1356, to the 1st of August, 1358, were going on in France, King John was living as a prisoner in the hands of the English, first at Bordeaux and afterwards in London, and was much more concerned about the reception he met with, and the galas he was present at, than about the affairs of his kingdom. When, after his defeat, he was conducted to Bordeaux by the Prince of Wales, who was governor of English Aquitaine, he became the object of the most courteous attentions, not only on the part of his princely conqueror, but of all Gascon society, dames and damsels, old and young, and their fair attendants, who took pleasure in consoling him by providing him with diversion. Thus he passed the winter of 1356, and in the spring the Prince of Wales received from his father, King Edward III, the instructions and the vessels he had requested for the conveyance of his prisoner to England. In the month of May 1357 he summoned, says Froissart, all the highest barons of Gascony, and told them that he had made up his mind to go to England, whither he would take some of them, leaving the rest in the country of Bordelais and Gascony, to keep the land and the frontiers against the French. When the Gascius heard that the Prince of Wales would carry away out of their power the King of France, whom they had helped to take, they were by no means of accord therewith, and said to the Prince, In all that is in our power, all honour, obedience, and loyal service. But it is not our desire that you should thus remove from us the King of France, in respect of whom we have had great trouble to put him in the place where he is. For, thank God, he is in a good strong city, and we are strong and men enough to keep him against the French. 
if they by force would take him from you. The prince answered, Dear sirs, I grant it heartily, but my lord my father wishes to hold and behold him, and with the good service that you have done my father, and me also, we are well pleased, and it shall be handsomely requited. Nevertheless these words did not suffice to appease the Gascons, until a means thereto was found by Sir Reginald de Cobham and Sir John Chandos, for they knew the Gascons to be very covetous. So they said to the prince, Sir, offer them a sum of florins, and you will see them come down to your demands. The prince offered them sixty thousand florins, but they would have nothing to do with them. At last there was so much haggling that an agreement was made for a hundred thousand francs, which the prince was to hand over to the barons of Gascony to share between them. He borrowed the money, and the said sum was paid and handed over to them before the prince started. When these matters were done, the prince put out to sea with a fine fleet, crammed with men-at-arms and archers, and put the king of France in a vessel quite apart, that he might be more at his ease. They were at sea eleven days and eleven nights, continues Froissart, and on the twelfth they arrived at Sandwich Harbour, where they landed and halted two days to refresh themselves and their horses. On the third day they set out and came to St. Thomas of Canterbury. When the news reached the king and queen of England that the prince their son had arrived and had brought with him the king of France, they were greatly rejoiced thereat, and gave orders to the burgesses of London to get themselves ready, in as splendid fashion as was beseeming to receive the king of France. They of the city of London obeyed the king's commandment, and arrayed themselves by companies most richly, all the trades in cloth of different kinds. According to the poet Harold at Arms of John Chandos, King Edward III went in person, with his barons and more than twenty counts, to meet King John, who entered London, mounted on a tall white steed, right well harnessed and accoutred at all points, and the Prince of Wales on a little black hackney at his side. King John was first of all lodged in London at the Savoy Hotel, and shortly afterwards removed with all his people to Windsor. There, says Froissart, to hawk, hunt, disport himself, and take his pastime according to his pleasure, and Sir Philip, his son also, and all the rest of the other lords, counts, and barons, remained in London, but they went to see the king when it pleased them, and they were put upon their honour only. Chandos's poet adds, Many a dame and many a damsel, right amiable, gay and lovely, came to dance there, to sing, and to cause great galas and jousts, as in the days of King Arthur. In the midst of his pleasures in England, King John sometimes also occupied himself at Windsor with his business in France, but with no more wisdom or success than had been his wont during his actual reign. Towards the end of April, 1359, the Dauphin Regent received at Paris the text of a treaty, which the king his father had concluded in London with the king of England. The cession of the western half of France, from Calais to Bayonne, and the immediate payment of four million golden crowns, such was, according to the terms of this treaty, the price of King John's ransom, says M. Picot, in his work concerning the history of the States-General, which was crowned in 1869 by the Académie des Sciences Morales et Politiques, and the Regent resolved to leave to the judgment of France the acceptance or refusal of such exorbitant demands. He summoned a meeting to be held at Paris on the 19th of May, of churchmen, nobles, and deputies from the good towns, but there came but few deputies, as well because full notice had not by that time been given of the said summons, as because roads were blocked by the English and the Navarrese, who occupied fortresses in all parts whereby it was possible to get to Paris. The assembly had to be postponed from day to day. 
At last, on the 25th of May, the regent repaired to the palace. He halted on the marble staircase, around him were ranged the three estates, and a numerous multitude filled the courtyard. In presence of all the people, William de Dormon, the king's advocate in Parliament, read the Treaty of Peace, which was to divide the kingdom into two parts, so as to hand over one to the foes of France. The reading of it roused the indignation of the people. The estates replied that the treaty was not tolerable or feasible, and in their patriotic enthusiasm decreed to make fair war on the English. But it was not enough to spare the kingdom the shame of such a treaty. It was necessary to give the regent the means of concluding a better. On the 2nd of June, the nobles announced to the Dauphin that they would serve for a month at their own expense, and that they would pay, besides, such imposts as should be decreed by the good towns. The churchmen also offered to pay them. The city of Paris undertook to maintain six hundred swords, three hundred archers, and a thousand brigands. The good towns offered twelve thousand men, but they could not keep their promise, the country being utterly ruined. When King John heard at Windsor that the treaty, whereby he had hoped to be set at liberty, had been rejected at Paris, he showed his displeasure by a single outburst of personal animosity, saying, "'Ah, Charles, fair son, you were counselled by the King of Navarre, who deceives you, and would deceive sixty such as you.' Edward III, on his side, at once took measures for recommencing the war, but before engaging in it he had King John removed from Windsor to Hartford Castle, and thence to Somerton, where he set a strong guard. Having thus made certain that his prisoner would not escape from him, he put to sea, and on the 28th of October, 1359, landed at Calais with a numerous and well-supplied army. Then, rapidly traversing northern France, he did not halt till he arrived before Rheims, which he was in hopes of surprising, and where, it is said, he purported to have himself without delay crowned King of France. But he found the place so well provided, and the population so determined to make a good defence, that he raised the siege and moved on to Chalon, where the same disappointment awaited him. Passing from Champagne to Burgundy, he then commenced the same course of scouring and ravaging, but the Burgundians entered into negotiations with him, and by a treaty concluded on the 10th of March, 1360, and signed by Joan of Auvergne, Queen of France, second wife of King John, and guardian of the young Duke of Burgundy, Philippe de Rouvre, they obtained at the cost of two hundred thousand golden sheep, moutons, an agreement that for three years Edward and his army would not go scouring and burning in Burgundy, as they were doing in other parts of France. Such was the powerlessness, or rather absence, of all national government, that a province made a treaty all alone and on its own account, without causing the regent to show any surprise, or to dream of making any complaint. As a make-weight, at this same time, another province, Picardy, aided by many Normans and Flemings, its neighbours, nobles, burgesses, and common folk, was sending to sea an expedition which was going to try, with God's help, to deliver King John from his prison in England, and bring him back in triumph to his kingdom. Thus, says the chronicler, they who, God-forsaken or through their own faults, could not defend themselves on the soil of their fathers, were going abroad to seek their fortune and their renown, to return home covered with honour and boasting of divine succour. The Picard expedition landed in England on the 14th of March, 1360. It did not deliver King John, but it took and gave over to flames and pillage for two days the town of Winchelsea, after which it put to sea again and returned to its hearths. End of chapter 22, part 1